Welcome to Studs, a podcast about working. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet listened to the introduction to Season 1, please go ahead and do so. It dives into the threefold mission of this podcast, and it tells you a little bit about me. The short version is, Studs explores and honors working. It also seeks to honor the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And, in an effort to close the social distance, Studs allows me to empathically engage with my people. This episode of Studs features a conversation with none other than Brad Newman, a dear old friend who's made quite a name for himself in the Chicago food scene. Brad's an entrepreneur, an educator, and though he's allergic to the title, a highly decorated chef. I love every second of our conversation. Brad divulges the four-letter F-word that motivates him to tirelessly change how we think about food. And no, it is not the word you have in mind, you filthy beast. He also reveals why he can't bring himself to enjoy his many, many successes. To my surprise, he describes how a quesadilla with me in 1986 is single-handedly responsible for every single one of his tremendous successes. <laughs> I hope you enjoy my dive into the working life of Brad Newman. Chef Bradley Newman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us. How you holding up, man? I'm holding up. I'm keeping a smile no matter what. And I'm not a big fan of being called chef. No? Wait, you don't like being called chef? Not at all, no. Can you tell me why not? Um, when I was young and I was working at some of the fancier restaurants, um, as an insult, the chef would call the cook chef. Like if you didn't listen or if you weren't doing a good job or if your work wasn't up to par, um, the chef would come up to you and be like, oh, nice work, chef. And it was very insulting for the chef to call it cook chef. Uh. And then many years later, when I actually became a chef, you know, had the title, um, I worked for a French company called Accor, and they own the Sofitel Hotels. And I was the chef of the Sofitel Chicago. I had a bad relationship with the GMs and so on. And during our corporate meetings and during our finance meetings, they would call me chef. In the past 10 years or so, you know, since the Food Network, um, the term chef is quite loose. So people throw that term around and it kind of has lost some of its value. So I, I'm not a big fan of being called chef or calling other people chef. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are indeed a, a trained chef. Despite your distaste for the word, you went through the training and you've, you've earned the title despite not wanting to use it. Is that the case? Yeah, I did. I uh, went to culinary school. I worked my way up. I had some classical training. I've lived all over the world. And at one point in my life, I did have the title of executive chef at, at several places. Yep. How do you describe what it is that you do? What I do as a chef, not as a business owner, what I do as a chef is to train people to prepare, to sanitize, to clean, to work with food and make a profit and to work with vendors and purveyors and growers of quality foods and to sell these foods at a profit. 
the term in Latin chef, the word chef means teacher. So as a chef, when you're executive chef or chef hotel, your job is to teach, to have people understand um, what you want from products and how to purchase and sell these products at a profit. That's what chef means to me. Mm. And you are also an entrepreneur. Can you talk a little bit about what you do vis-a-vis your entrepreneurial endeavors? I own a small company that provides food service. So that's not necessarily chefing or cooking, but it's full service. We have a staff at each at for, for uh, private schools. Um, some of the most prestigious private schools in the Midwest or Illinois, or maybe even the country, Bennett Day School, uh, Walcott High School, and all four sacred heart schools of Chicago, some of the most expensive, prestigious um, private schools. And we have a small kitchen and staff at each school. We provide education, food, cleanup, and service and maintenance of all the food service for these schools. Um, I also own a small uh, bakery, a small cafe. I'm in the process of opening a bar. And I also do 10 farmer's markets a week where we sell fresh baked goods, sandwiches, tacos, jellies, jams, all made with uh, local Midwest products sold at farmer's markets. Brad, you seem to be wearing a few hats in this gig. Can you talk a little bit about how you balance your roles cooking for schools and the bakery and prepping for a bar and all of these different markets? How do you, how do you balance all of that? There's no balance. You're dependent on other people. You're dependent on your team. Um, all this comes from desperation. It all comes from fear. Um, we decided to, I had a job as a chef for the University of Chicago at a very famous, well-known, prestigious club called the Quadrangle Club. I was the executive chef there. It did about $12 million a year in food sales. President Obama is a member. 81 Nobel laureates, uh, international CEO dinners of 50 CEOs flown in on private jets from around the world with armed guards, you know, 10 course meals with Japanese beef and wild fish and caviar and so on. And I was having a lot of issues at work and out of duress of um, having issues being the chef, you know, not trying to be able to find a personal life or, or not really enjoying the career of chefing anymore. Um, I started a small farmer's market project with a very famous farmer named Jude Becker, Becker Lane Farms. Um, he's on the board of agriculture for the country of France. He was on the Oprah Winfrey show. And he asked me one day if uh, we could sell his product cooked at the Green City Market. We came up with some products for him. We partnered off and it wound up being a huge hit. From there, thinking I was gonna lose the project, um, I got kicked out of the kitchen we were borrowing. I had a falling out with a close friend. Um, out of desperation, we started a small restaurant to support the farmer's markets. And out of thinking that we could never be successful as restaurateurs, we started to look at any other stream of revenue we possibly can. And just out of utter fear, we started all these businesses. And over a 12-year period, I've been working for myself now for 12 years, some of them have wound up uh, turning out okay, and some of them have even made a bit of profit, and all of them have shown some growth. So none of this was wanted. You know, I wanted to be known as a restaurant guy that had a fancy restaurant and 
sell great liquor and do all kinds of cool things. But out of fear and desperation, we wound up just looking for streams of revenue, selling good products. That's what brings me to where I am today. So the obvious question, uh, what are you afraid of? Honestly, Dan? Yeah, please. I'm afraid of every fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I share some of that. Yeah. Just some general anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid of not being able to pay my bills. I'm afraid of not being taken serious. I'm afraid of not being able to retire or have a financial future. I'm afraid of not being able to find time to have a family. I'm afraid that I would have to be a chef forever. I have fears in relationships. I have fears in business. I have fears with money and finances. I, I am generally pretty much afraid of, of everything mm. and always have been. <laughs> How much of that animates your seemingly nonstop work life? It's 80%, Dan. It's like uh, 20% is, fin- 10% is financial motivation. 10% is ego motivation. And what I mean by that is um, I don't want to be associated with cheap products. I don't want to be associated with cheap meat or cheap produce. I want to be associated with uh, the higher end, the bougie, the high quality. And um, the other 80% is uh, fear motivated. Are you comfortable with that 80, 10, 10? No, no. I've never been comfortable in anything I've done since I was 10 years old. I'm not comfortable at all. I'm nervous every day. Even when I'm making a ton of money and, and we're getting great write-ups and, and people are loving the product and people are approaching us with new opportunities, it doesn't wean any of the fear whatsoever. In fact, maybe even the fear increases because then you feel like you have something that you could actually lose. I feel like I have something that I could actually lose. It's horrible as that sounds. No, it, it sounds uh, painfully real and it's something with which... I can identify. I think you're just being perfectly honest that you, like everyone else, are motivated by fear. The difference is that you are perhaps more aware of it. Would you, in a perfect world, be motivated by something other than fear? Or is fear what it takes to get you to push for the successes that you've achieved? I have a hard time seeing any success because it's a constant push. Um, I would say as you get older, your fears uh, evolve and your motivations, you know, maybe when you're younger, it could be attention or sex or drugs or money. But as you get older, it could be health and wellness. You know, that's how I feel now in my mid forties. The fear is, is not good for business. The fear is not good for anything. I, the only benefit I could see from the fear is it might get you out of bed um, when you don't want to. I, I actually think of it as a hindrance and something that I have to get over to be truly successful. Do you see a path to overcoming or otherwise managing these fears? Okay, managing the fear is, um, is doable. Overcoming the fear, I just don't know if I'm... Um, I just... I want to. So when you want something bad enough, you learn skills and techniques and, and you read and, and you, you get inspired by people. But um, I really have not seen much progress in, in my own feelings about uh, getting over these fears. 
have you pursued the tried, true, and tested methods? Oh, Dan, I've seen a psycho. I've, I've seen a psychologist. I've read the books, self help. You name it. Okay. But once you think, once I have thought that I was overcoming one thing, then business um, throws you a whole new ball, and then you have a whole new ball of fear to deal with. Every time I get over one fear, it feels like I got four more behind it that I have to learn how to overcome. Now, it would seem to me that there's a path for you if you wanted to um, deal with fewer fears to take your impeccable resume and reputation and walk into a, a restaurant of your choosing and make a pretty good living with a a lot fewer things to fear. What's stopping you from doing that? Hmm. I, I could. I have some value um, in the U.S. and beyond as somebody who knows how to work a larger program, that knows how to work with good purveyors, that knows how to train tougher employees, and knows how to relate with very skilled employees. I have some value. Um, unfortunately, I have... Uh, been disillusioned about being the, a chef as a career. It's a very tough career. It's a very, you're in a basement, let's say the finest hotel you've ever seen or been to. I've, I've probably worked at a nicer one to be in the basement or the bowels of even the nicest place is still a dungeon. And to work every holiday, every Saturday, every time there's a VIP, every time a president wants to stay there, or Madonna wants to stay there, or the Rolling Stones want to rent out of a room, you're expected to be there to, to collect the higher salaries. And it has become a career that seems to be unsustainable if you have family goals or health goals. So... Um, the idea of going back to a hotel or a fancy restaurant or a restaurant group or a consulting group and, and to go live in some wonderful San Francisco or Beijing or wherever actually feels like some sort of jail sentence to me. One of my biggest fears in my business is that I can't sustain business or that I lose my business. And then just to keep my lifestyle, I would be forced to go be a chef again somewhere. Any of these answers surprising you, Dan? I'm a little bit surprised by how much fear has motivated you because I'll confess that I, having known you for some 40 years, I've um, inaccurately come to see you as one of the more fearless people that I know. Well, fearless, fearless for maybe being yourself or, or what have you, but, um, all the other fears are, are very internal. So I, I would call it false confidence that you might have <laughs> noticed. <laughs> I, I could be accused of having some of that. But it, it makes sense in a certain way because it seems to me that the fears that you've collected and the fears that you've demonstrated and are talking about are in many ways a manifestation of having chosen the road less traveled you have created for yourself a great deal of professional freedom, a freedom that's so much different than, as you described it, the, the dungeons or the bowels of even the nicest hotel. So you have this anxiety, which as 
the philosopher Kierkegaard once said, you know, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Hmm. So you have this freedom to juggle all of these different projects and not be bound to the, the bowels of a hotel. But with that freedom comes fear. Fear of loss. And you have so much to lose uh, because you've created so much. Out of fear. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and there we come full circle, don't we? Now, in part because the world of chefs have become celebritized. It's so popular, as you said. Mm. It, it almost seems like one can't just be a chef anymore anyway. Like people who work in food, they have to be creators with a story to tell and a worldview they need to share. It's almost like food in itself has become ideological. Yeah, for sure. Does this sound right to you? And if so, like, what is the story that you want to tell and the worldview you're trying to share about food? My biggest ego trip, my goal is to shed light on food, shed light on what people are really eating, not what the restaurant's marketing to organic this or biodynamic this or sustainable that, but actually let people know and show people in real time the difference between a properly raised chicken and a commodity chicken and to show people in the industry that are cooking the difference between getting like these ambiguous chicken pieces in a box and the difference between somebody who has an amazing product and has to get whole chickens and take it apart and use the feet for stock and use the ends of the wings to make sauces and, and the difference between the food of somebody who cooks in the world that we have grown to know in food, which is very unhealthy, very commoditized, and to kind of open people's eyes on what the reality is of quality. And my ego and my goal is to show people and talk about food as in quality as much as possible. And um, I'm willing to take less margin, less money, so I could be associated and be around people producing great products. And without great products, there's no great chef, no great food. It's my ego that wants to expose people to the facts that these higher quality foods are better for the environment and better for your health. I respect that you're doing that. It's my ego that's doing that. Well, that's what I want to ask. Can you talk a little bit about what this has to do with your ego? It kind of puts me on some bullshit high horse as an expert. And it also kind of showcases my background as classically trained and very well trained. And it also shows kind of my maturity in the industry and my travel within the industry to show that I actually know a lot about where the products come from, how they're grown, how they're harvested, how they're raised, how they're prepped and shipped and brought to the back door of your restaurant. So using the format of quality products kind of uh, massages my ego to let the people around me know that that maybe I'm, I'm more of a chef than they are or I'm more trained or I have better experience than they do. It used to be noble and it used to be, oh, I want to feed the kids the best products and t 
teach the parents about what kids are really eating and, and different ways to feed their children and make food more acceptable to them. But what I'm re- starting to realize is it's, it's more of an ego and I just want people to associate me with being really good at what I do. What made you care so much about food service to begin with? Um, it, honestly, my obsession with eating, my obsession with quality food. I mean, you know me, Dan. I remember uh, distinctly having you at my house. I think we were in sixth grade. I made quesadillas. And it was like chopped up chicken meat my mom had, cheese in a bag that my mom had, and I put it in a pan, and I melted the cheese on a tortilla, and I put the chicken on there, and we ate it with some canned salsa. And everybody was so impressed that I could, like, turn the stove on and what have you. And in my family, it was very normal to be in fifth and sixth grade and to be able to, like, boil some spaghetti noodles or to be able to make a grilled cheese sandwich. I didn't understand that other kids didn't know how to make a grilled cheese sandwich in sixth grade. Both of us, for our own reasons, struggled with school a bit. Hmm. Do you think that having that type of... You could elaborate. I'm not embarrassed. Well, I don't... I mean, you could tell people the truth. I'm not, I'm, it's not, like, uh, not like I'm hiding from anything. Well, I don't know what I would tell them. You know, I would had learning disabilities, and it reflected in the way I acted, and it reflected in my fears, and you know, college wasn't a possibility for me. And I, I thought maybe I was on the path to being quite a loser, maybe. Do you think that um, having that, like having me over, having your buddies over and being like, you fools can't do this. I'm going to make you quesadillas. Check check out what I can do. I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. I remember the moment. It was one of those like, you know, when you're a chef or you're in the culinary field, people ask you about those moments. And I remember making quesadillas and thinking every, everybody makes quesadillas. And it kind of led me into a path where my first job, I worked at a restaurant because I felt like I was capable of doing that. Was it Barry's Barbecue and Ribs? It wasn't Barry's, no. <laughs> where did, what, was your first, what was your first job? I worked at Dominic's, 15 years old. My mom uh, forged my birth certificate. That was a tradition in our family. BJ, my dad forged mine so I could work at Uncle Freddy's Red Hots. Dude, I'm telling you, I think it was like Jewish tradition. Like what they didn't tell you, though, what do you know what our parents didn't tell you was that they weren't going to buy his clothes anymore. <laughs> that was the scam. They made us feel all proud. Like, oh, my God, you're 15. We get to forge your 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 certificate. Now you get to get a job. But they didn't tell you that they're not going to buy you jeans anymore. It was like a, it was a bait and switch. And I know you were a part of that shit. I definitely was. But in retrospect, and as a parent, I can say shopping with at least some kids, I mean, shopping with me was, it was, it was horrible. It was awful. It was horror awful. Like to, to have to suffer the indignities of my indecision. And I was angry and like, you know, I was overweight. I didn't like how anything looked at me. And even if I wasn't overweight. Oh, I felt the same way. I felt the same fucking way. I don't blame them for forging my birth certificate so I could at least go shopping by myself with my own money and like feel independent. And then at the same time, save them the indignity of having to shop with like an angry fat kid. Yeah. I mean, I I was an angry fat kid too. Me and you were like the two chubby kids. It was weird. Hold on though. This is some low hanging fruit. Tell me if it tastes right. You had eating issues. You're overweight because you had eating issues. And here you are. 
well, did we have eating issues or did we have feeding? feeding? I mean, when our parents used to cook for us, they, 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 there was only five people at home. They would cook for 20, 30 people at a time. <laughs> my parents never said no. When, when I would go to lunch, my mom would put a sleeve of Oreo cookies and a sleeve of Ritz crackers and an entire Merck's cheese in my lunch bag. Like that was normal. I remember I'm bringing corned beef sandwiches to school and the corned beef sandwich would weigh a pound. Yeah. 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 That was normal for the Jewish kids at our school. And so you developed issues around food or these issues were thrust. Oh, I still you. have every, every eating and food issue you could possibly imagine. Yeah. I struggle with it too developed some control, but only through becoming a control freak. Well, I realized that um, I had issues when I got older and it translated to like drugs and sex and alcohol and, and all that and smoking and all, all the other shit. Like an inability to uh, like read our bodies in a way and to know what we really needed. Like, I think we were just, both of us were really searching for something to satiate us. And if it wasn't food, it was maybe one of the other things or all of the other things you're talking about. For sure. I think I'm still there. I just, like you said, I have matured and, and I don't want to be a loser and I don't want to lose what I have. So I have a little bit more control. How much of your work is a manifestation of your need to control the landscape around you? Oh my God, Dan, I, it's growing. I spent my entire life in a kitchen. And I worked with some really brutal people that were really good. So you looked up to them for being artists and being amazing, and, but getting abused by them at the same time has made me an utter control freak. Girlfriends, friends, business partners, employees. You know, because my, my parents were control freaks too. Over you or over other things? Oh, my God. Over everything everybody everything i have been to a restaurant of yours called cookies and carnitas what was the dream and uh did you get close to it well i'm still living in it i would have to say in retrospect i've lived out a lot of dreams um unfortunately uh while you're going into it while people are saying good things about you while you're showing growth in business um i had so much fear I forgot to take time to enjoy any of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've lived out a lot of dreams. A lot. I was the chef of a Michelin star restaurant. I uh, had an employee become a James Beard nominee. I, uh, I've had every accolade, you know, local accolade that you could. I, uh, I really forgot to take a minute and to enjoy any of it. I was too afraid and I uh, was uh, trying to sustain and trying to make sure that I could do this for the rest of my life. I mean, you want to hear a cool dream um, that I lived out? Yeah. So, you know that TV show, Best of Chicago? Yeah. So I was on Best of Chicago. My grandfather and some family members were in the dining room on the day of the taping. And then... Six weeks later, when it came out on TV, it was my grandfather's 93rd birthday, and we got to sit in his house and watch him on TV on his birthday. And not only that, he was in World War II, and he was born, you know, Depression era and so on. They, to be on TV is a huge deal for them. Like, if you were on TV, then it was a big deal. So he got to see himself 
at my restaurant on TV on his 93rd birthday. Oh, that's splendid. How splendid is that? And was literally pacing and doing business on the phone while my grandfather saw himself at my place on TV. Hmm. Didn't even get to enjoy any of that. So Rick Bayless, who's a very famous uh, Chicago chef in the restaurant eating tacos with his team, didn't get to enjoy it. Um, one of the best restaurants in the world, the Alinea Group, um, called us and wanted it. And for four years in a row, we catered their holiday party. Didn't get to enjoy any of it. Never one moment was I happy or felt comfortable. Even while I'm feeding a three-star mission restaurant, they called us. They wanted us to service their team for their holiday party. And uh, instead of enjoying it, uh, I'm running around in a truck. I'm loading, I'm unloading, I'm feeling nervous. Never, never once took a breath and appreciated the small successes. You're breaking my heart. And I want to know. <laughs> Don't make me cry, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning, though. Shit's going to go down soon, and I'm going to make sure that I take a fucking deep breath and, and I enjoy it. I hope. When you say shit's going down soon. I mean, we're opening um, an independent restaurant in Chicago and restaurants as small of a business as they are. I don't think it's right and I don't agree with it, but they track a massive amount of attention. People in big cities, you live in Berlin, correct? Yeah. People's favorite like uh, falafel place or taco place or, or little cafe or little Michelin star brew pub, people fucking go crazy for them and the attention that they get is unbelievable it's almost intoxicating and uh it's totally unwarranted and totally undeserved these little restaurants become cult favorites and people just fall in love with them Mm. and um so we're going to be going through that process and i've gone through it before but this is going to be the second time where i get to do it on my own and i get to take all the credit and now that i went through it once i promised myself that when all the positive articles and the little TV spots and all the little things start coming, then I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to smile and I'm going to tr- make a conscious effort to enjoy the attention. Please do. I'm going to, God damn it. Because if I don't, I don't know. Or if I can't, what's the point? Mm. So every kitchen has its own feel and personality. What does the kitchen feel like at Cookies and Carnitas? When I was younger, I worked at some uh, very prestigious places that kind of made my career possible. So, um, you know, I you know I worked at Charlie Trotter's for several years, and I was a sous chef at a place called True, and I worked in Spain at La Terrassa del Casino, and I lived in Japan for a bit, and I, I've done some things that uh, were difficult to do, but it kind of gave me a leg up. Most of the time, those environments were very aggressive and they were very unforgiving and unapologetic about your schedule or your feelings or your wellness. Because of that, when I first started with my own business, I didn't know how to have a different type of environment because I didn't learn. I only learned how to have this angry environment, I guess is a good way to put it. I have learned better since. And I am very conscious about my, especially my chefs and especially about my managers, about the quality of their life. I actually have an amazing atmosphere and I love the people I work with. I take huge, 
huge pride in that. And I'm also very conscious of drugs and alcohol and people with affliction and keeping them away from my environment. It does seem to afflict uh, the industry, broadly speaking, doesn't it? Oh, big time, Dan. If you don't understand why, it's easy. I could easily explain it to you. Sure, go ahead. Well, culinary is is after hours. You go to work, you know, at two p.m. You don't go to work at eight a.m. And people who maybe come from a, a bad background or have drinking issues or, or social issues might not necessarily fit in the front of the building, but they could find a home in the back. Yeah, you see on TV all these handsome models who think they know how to cook and what have you. But the reality is it's immigrant workers, illegal workers. It's people with um, criminal past are the people that grab, you know, yeah, of course, there's genius chefs out there, but their crew of 50, you know, might be ex-convicts or, or have all kinds of social issues. It's a team environment, and it's easy to see while somebody with afflictions or so on would gravitate to be working at night or working in, in the kitchen in the bowels of a hotel. So, and it's low pay. It's riddled with, with alcoholism and addiction and, and all kinds of other issues. You certainly had employees who grapple with their demons. Oh, yeah. You keep them on board or... I do. Is it an open discussion you have with them? Um, I open the discussion right away. I am not embarrassed. I am not ashamed. Um, but there is a toll. I'm a small business. If it affects my business or if it affects my finances or what have you, I don't have much wiggle room. I am a martyr at heart, but I cannot be a martyr at work or, or else it becomes very irresponsible. So people with drinking issues and drug issues, they could they could discuss openly. But if I see it firsthand at work, I, I, I really don't give much leeway, hmm. but, but I see it a lot, a real lot. So this is just like one of the many challenges you face as a, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur. Hmm. I get the sense that among other things, you know, you're a proud business owner, uh, but I don't know what your relationship is like with business. Can you describe what your relationship is like with the business side of your gig? Like the relationship with a reoccurring nightmare? Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe it's so bad you're even fearful to get rest or get sleep. Um, culinarily speaking, training my staff, acquiring my staff, making great food, no fear because I have a lifetime of experience. But as far as accounting and operating and marketing and uh, being compliant with state and federal compliances and so on is dreadfully fearful. Do you work with others to help offload some of that burden or does that fall squarely on your shoulders? I have a, I, I've had a couple business partners in my career. One of them, someone who I love dearly, great friend, you know, he spent years in jail he had issues with drugs and alcohol and sex and all those things and um, was doing great and our business was doing great and decided to uh, go back to his old ways, which was very scary. And I have taken on a new business partner since, a woman that I worked with in 1999. And she's like a Northwestern grad. She's very good with business. She has helped me grow my business quite significantly since. 
And of course, she has helped me with the fears and she's helped me think bigger. But um, I also, there's a whole new level of trying to work with somebody new, trusting somebody with your emotions, trusting somebody with your money, your finances, your business. So I uh, do work very closely with somebody who kind of fills the gaps that I don't know, the business gaps and the accounting gaps. And we kind of work together and um, it's been working out great, but it's very scary. It's a lot of vulnerability, but it seems like you have trust. Um, I, yeah, and that's another thing. I'm not, I don't, I have an issue with trust. I don't really trust myself. So I don't really trust anybody around me either. Mm. So yeah, trust is, trust is something I'm working on do me a favor and just paint a picture of a satisfying work day when all the wheels are in motion and everything feels good. What does that look like? When, when you own it, you don't get to like have a day because you might not see the results for a month or you might prepare for an event and you think you have a successful day and it doesn't come off right. Uh, you, you don't really get a day ever. You have moments at the end of the month where like you tried new business and you think that your margin is going to be high because it's new or whatever. And then you have these little victories. I would say, I'll give you an example. We, out of desperation, started three or four new products. We needed to pick up $30,000 a month in sales just to keep us afloat to September till the school starts. And we were starting that $30,000 necessity to survive off with about $2,500 in sales. We decided to reach out to the schools and do a product where we would teach online classes and we would make the food at the restaurant and then we would deliver it for 65 bucks plus $15 delivery. We would deliver to students between first and sixth grade and then for one hour we would do a video where I would teach a teacher and then the teacher would teach the kids how to cook a simple recipe and then they could eat it with their family it would feed four people we decided to do it thinking that we'd lose money, but it was like a new product. We taught six kids at first. It went so well that now we're doing it twice a day. We have 14 kids per class and we are going to make it to fucking September when those school starts. And I'm going to be one of the lucky ones. We're, we're going to make it. Cookies and carnitas is, is going to be around another 12 years, hopefully. Can you tell the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? Um, my life has been riddled with failure. Uh-huh. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it differently. I'm not going to give you a specific. I'm going to tell you that my greatest triumph is continuing to get up after so many failures. Lastly, Brad Newman, can you recommend to me a guest I should pursue? Anybody who uh, works in livestock... Um, especially high quality, not commodity stuff, but, uh, and especially a young person. Um, if you uh, grow animals for a living, there is no vacation. A pig needs to eat every day. A goat needs to be milked every day to listen how they live and their connection with nature and their connection with sales and big cities and their connections with chefs and their connections with uh, the environment. It's unfucking believable. Is there a particular individual who, you think I should reach out, reach out to or a, or a farm? I, I am totally enamored by Hayden Holbert. He, he owns a farm called Avram Farms in Green Lake, Wisconsin, and he grew up in Bucktown in the city. He went to Lincoln Park High School, and he is 24 freaking years old and is a livestock farmer. 
And I don't know how he got into it. I don't know how he became an expert on it. And he's doing amazing, very incredible, difficult things. And he's growing heirloom pigs and heirloom chickens. And he's 24 freaking years old. And it's, it's unbelievable. I'll try to get him on the show. Brad, thank you so much for carving Dan, out some thank you, man. And out of your busy. I miss you. When, once this Corona bullshit's gone, I'm going to come to Germany. You're going to have to show me around and you're going to have to, we're going to have to stuff ourselves like sausages. I love you, brother. Thank you so much. Love you too, Dan. I, I wish you and your family the best. I wish your uh, mom and dad the best and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Brad Newman, ladies and gentlemen. How cool was that? Love BJ Newman. See, I told you. If it weren't for me and a quesadilla in sixth grade, old Brad would be nothing but a street urchin. Man, I love that guy. Not a bad first episode, right? So subscribe, leave a like, offer a comment, and pretty please, with sugar on top, help me honor working, and share studs with your people. <laughs> <laughs>